Romans chapter 3. As Christians, we believe that all of the Bible is God's Word. All of it is equally inspired by God. All of it is equally Scripture. And so we affirm with Paul that all the Bible, every book, every chapter, every verse is in some way, as he says, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All of the Bible. Even those parts that, frankly, you find boring. God has put there for a reason. And yet there are other parts of the Bible that are more immediately helpful to us. That, that there is a more uh, intense and a more immediate spiritual payoff when we look at those texts. It is not hard to bridge the gap between what was going on in that passage and what's being said there in our lives even today. Those kinds of texts help us to not only understand the Bible well, but understand what God is doing in the Bible, the great story that he is seeking to tell us. And in all of the scriptures, in every book that God has inspired to be written, there is no other book that is equal to the book of Romans. If the Bible is a vast landscape, then Romans is Everest on that landscape. For in this book, Paul is surveying all of human history, past, present, and future. And not just the events of history. Paul is surveying God himself who has created history and continues to shape it. He is looking not just at God, but at humanity. It's very uh, the very minds and hearts of every single person as either they have appropriately responded to God or whether they have rejected him. In the book of Romans, Paul is showing us the what, the why, and the how of everything, past, present, and future. It's an amazing, all-encompassing book. And in seeking to convey this message to Christians, in other words, Paul is, is seeking to write all of this, uh, not just as some kind of abstraction, not just as some kind of uh, theoretical idea, but he is very specifically writing so that God's people will have in their minds a clearer picture of who God is and who they are in response to him. He is seeking to help create in the minds of God's people a clear sense of God-centeredness in their thinking, a, an understanding by which they can, they can see all of the world and know exactly how it all fits together. And frankly, this is what we will gain if we take hold of and wrestle with this book to understand that it will not only help us understand God's word as a whole, the entirety of the Bible, but it will help us to understand why and how we ourselves, even today, almost 2,000 years after Paul wrote this book, how and why we should respond in faith and love and obedience to God himself. But what prompted Paul to write this letter? Why did he sit down and put uh, pen to parchment, as it were, and, and compose this letter to the Roman Christians? Well, again, it's not like Paul sat down one day and said, you know, I think I'll, I'll write this great theological treatise for God's people. Uh, I, I think I will write this great theological book that will answer the qu questions in the minds of some Christians, and it will create lots of other questions in the minds of others. Okay, that's, that, that wasn't his point. Every single book that Paul wrote was written with a pastoral heart. In other words, there was some issue going on in a church that motivated him to write. It was a concern for people to minister to them, to help them understand who they were in relationship to God and how they should live their life. And this book is no different. The Roman historian Suetonius 
tells us that in 49 AD, the emperor Claudius, quote, expelled the Jews from Rome because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of Crestus. Do you know who Crestus is? We know him as Christ. You see, at this point in the history of Rome, the church was growing to such a degree that the Jews, as Jews, were getting incredibly frustrated and enraged at the blasphemy they believed the Christians were perpetrating at Jesus Christ, at the name of Christ. And in fact, such was the, the riot, as it were, in the words of Suetonius, such was the commotion, the problem being, being generated because of all this, the emperor just said, fine, I want all of the jews out of here just get out you're causing too many problems now the problem along with that was not just that the jews were exiled but all those jews who had come to faith in christ were also exiled along with them and though originally in the minority of the church in rome now those gentile christians who are not uh, expelled found themselves to be the only christians in rome And so now uh, they took over all of the leadership and the roles and the responsibilities. They were the church and they led the church. But it was a few years later that we realized, not just from history but also from the scriptures, that the that the Jewish, uh, Jewish Christians were allowed back along with the rest of the Jews to Rome. But now there was a problem. Before, the Jewish believers were in the majority at the church at Rome. Now they were in the minority. Before, they were the leaders. They were the, 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 the shapers and the directors of all Christian ministry in Rome. And now that's not the case. Now the Gentile believers are. And you can imagine there was not a little bit of friction and difficulty that came as a result of this situation. Now we know how we would solve this problem, don't we? Let's be honest. We'd start two churches, wouldn't we? Right? I mean, isn't that what happens? You have a, a, a minority or a majority that feels like their needs are not being met. They feel marginalized. They feel set aside. They feel like they're not getting what they want. So they pack up their tithe and they leave and they go somewhere else and they start a new church. Well, Paul has a better vision than that. Paul says, no. So that's not the solution to problems in the church. The solution is not just to split, particularly along these lines, on Jewish and Gentile lines. All of Paul's ministry is designed to to help bring not only Gentiles to faith in Christ, but to bring together Jews and Gentiles as one people of God, one new humanity, not called Jew, not called Gentile, simply called Christian. So Paul is now writing this book wanting to to unfold, as it were, the scroll of history and help them to understand biblically, in a God-centered way, how they are to relate to one another, how Jews and Gentiles figure into the very plan of God. He is seeking to bring these two groups around together around a clear, pervasive, and glorious plan that God has revealed to humanity through His Son, Jesus Christ. For Paul, doctrine does not, is not meant to divide, it is meant to unite. And for Paul, there is no more uniting doctrine. There is no more clear vision of God's righteous plan than in the gospel itself. And frankly, that's what Romans is all about, is the gospel. He walks us through not only humanity's need, but God's solution to humanity's need, what that solution is ultimately going to look like in the future, and how we should live in light of it today. It's a gospel book. 
revealing ultimately the very righteousness of God. That's the reason why Paul has written this letter to the Romans. That's the reason why he is seeking to bring together this people, not on saying, well, you just do a little bit of things the Gentiles like, and you just do a little bit of things the, the, the Jewish people like, and you all get together. No, Paul says, let's lift our eyes beyond the here and now. Let's just think about more than ourselves. Let's think about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Christ. And based upon that commonality, let us seek to live together as his people. So this morning, as we think about the entirety of the book of Romans, we want to do so through the lens of this passage, um, this passage in Romans chapter 3, where Paul, as it were, gets to uh, the very heart um, of the gospel itself. It's not just the message of Romans. It's not just the message of Paul. It is the message of the entire Bible that we find in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And that's what we want to look at now. And I would encourage you to follow along as I read. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. May God bless the reign of his word. Some have called these verses the greatest passage in the Bible. Some have called them the heart of the Bible. And what we saw spoken of again and again and again is the righteousness of God. And the question that we want to ask this morning is this. How is the righteousness of God seen in the gospel? And ultimately, what difference does that make for us? How is the righteousness of God seen in the gospel message? Not just in the message even, but in the events that give rise to the message, the reality that stands behind these words. And what does that have to do with us? We want to see four things here. First of all, we need to see the rejection of God's righteousness by sinful humanity. The rejection of God's righteousness by sinful humanity. In the opening chapters... Chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 20, right before our text. Paul has been advancing one point and one point only. He has been a preacher with one point. Wouldn't that be nice? He's saying over and over and over again, all of humanity is sinful. All of humanity is sinful. doesn't matter where you come from. doesn't matter what kind of family you've been born into. doesn't matter how good you think you've lived your life. Every single person who has ever lived in any context, in any country, they are sinners before God. Specifically, again, the context of Jews and Gentiles, he is wanting to say even the Jews who've had God's law, who have known God's will, enjoyed his presence, or even the Gentiles who though did not have the law were still made in the image of God and therefore had an innate sense of right and wrong and yet still did wrong, everyone has not obeyed God. Everyone has lived in a way contrary to him. Everyone has rebelled against him. 
They have done what is displeasing to God, and they now face his judgment. And Paul summarizes what he's been saying over these past three chapters in verse 23. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Today, people hardly even use the word sin. What does sin mean? Well, Paul basically gives us the definition right here. It is falling short of the glory of God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to fall short of God's glory? Well, one pastor is very helpful when he says this. Sin has to do with God mainly. And it's not mainly hurting people, though it does hurt people. Mainly, sin is dishonoring God. It is belittling His glory by not trusting Him, not treasuring Him, and not wanting Him as the foundation and center of our life. All have sinned and are therefore lacking the glory of God and therefore are dishonoring the glory of God. That is what sin is. Sin is choosing something else over God. At the end of the day, that's what it is. And yet, it looks like all kinds of things, doesn't it? Paul explains what sin looks like in a person's life just before our text, up in verses 10 through 18 of this chapter. And he quotes scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture from the Old Testament. He just piles them up, showing what it means to be sinful. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. Why? Verse 18. For there is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul quotes all kinds of these verses describing all different kinds of parts of the body. There's throats and tongues and lips and mouths spewing forth hate and deception. And then there are feet running towards sin, eyes looking away from God to other things. But at the end of it all, he says, sin isn't merely actions. Sometimes we think, if I, you know, if I just slept all day, I wouldn't be sinful. You're wrong. Sin is not just actions that you do. Paul says, ultimately, it's because there's no fear of God before our eyes. In other words, it's a heart issue. Sinful actions come out of our body because they spring from a sinful heart. We do not fear God, as it were. Therefore, all the sin that we commit, all the sinful actions, are simply manifestations of our sinful hearts. The question is, do we see that? Do we understand that? In 1997, U.S. News and World Report conducted a survey asking people who they believed were most likely to go to heaven. Now, we've got to put ourselves several years in the past, right? 1997, think about what's popular, what's going on. Two people listed as very likely to go to heaven, Michael Jordan and Oprah Winfrey. 79% believed Mother Teresa would go to heaven. Understand, this is not not just Christians, this is everybody in America, polled. 79% believed that Mother Teresa would go to heaven. In fact, only one person scored higher than Mother Teresa on the survey. Can you imagine who that might be? It was the people taking the survey. 80% of the people who took this survey believed they were, in fact, going to go to heaven. Now, think about what that says. 
I mean, let's just forget about Oprah and, and Jordan for, for a while, okay? Let's just kind of shove them off to the side. Let's just think about Mother Teresa, this woman who has devoted herself to do all of this good, and even secular people look at that, 79% of them look and say, that's, that, that's got to be someone who's going to get into heaven, working with the diseased and the sick and the impoverished and loving them and saying they're doing it all in the name of Jesus Christ. So that person's going to get to heaven. But, but even more than that, the average person, 80% of them says, I will be in heaven. Why? Why? Because they do not understand what sin is. They do not understand the depth and the level of the corruption that is in our heart that God calls sin and says should be condemned to hell forever. Because finally and ultimately, regardless of what you do to anybody else, every single sin is against me. That's what God says. That's what the Bible says says because we have defied god's glory an infinite and eternally good and righteous and glorious being because we have turned our back and refused to love and to honor the one who made us the one who is beauty incarnate we deserve an infinite punishment in hell now that is an incredibly bleak picture and yet it is only in grasping the bleakness, it is only in staring into the darkness, the oblivion of that reality, that we will be able to understand with joy and delight the rest of our text, the good news that comes. That is the bad news, the rejection of God's righteousness by sinful humanity. But now we want to see in verses 21 and through 22 the revelation of God's righteousness to all humanity. The revelation of God's righteousness to all humanity. In the past, the way God was made known to people was through the people Israel. It was to Israel that God gave his law through Moses. He gave his protection through the kings. He gave his forgiveness through the priests and his word through the prophets. To know God and to be known by God, to have a relationship with God, meant you had to become Jewish. And that you had to not only renounce your false gods, you had to renounce your entire way of life. The Bible called pagan, and you had to live as one of God's covenant people, the Jews. But Paul says, now, now, all that's changed. He says, but now, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What is Paul doing? Well, again, think about the context of what she's writing. Paul wants the Gentiles to know they should not feel inferior to the Jews. And he's trying to tell the Jews they should not feel prideful over the Gentiles because they're the covenant people of God. Paul says the old covenant with Israel had its time, it served its purpose, and now that has been fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, the old covenant is done. All of its structures, all of its systems, it has all been brought to fulfillment in Christ and is no more. God has now manifested his righteousness, not just bound up with Israel and the law and the prophets and that covenantal system. Now he has manifested his righteousness apart from that so that anyone, regardless of whether or not become a Jew, anyone can now come to know God. And at the same time, Paul says, don't think this is unexpected. Don't think God just kind of said, hey, surprise, look at this, I'm doing something different. He says, all along the prophets and the law have, have borne witness to this. You've known this is coming. You've known that the old is inherently old. It's temporary, and the new is going to come. 
As we talked about earlier in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, God promised that in Christ he would send a new and better Adam who would endure the temptation of Satan and defeat him on behalf of all humanity. In Deuteronomy 18, God promised that he would send Christ as a new and better Moses, a prophet who would speak his words with power to his people. In the Psalms, God promises Christ would come as the treasure of his people, the object of all true worship. In Isaiah, as we heard this morning, as we will continue to hear uh, this month, God promises Christ would both come humbly as an infant child, but would grow to be a mighty king, God incarnate, God in the flesh, who would even suffer and die in place of his people, bringing them to God. Over and over and over again, we could spend weeks just, just walking through the Old Testament and doing that. The law and the prophets were prophesying. They were pointing forward. They were looking forward to this new covenant when God would break out of the old structures and seek to reach all people through Christ. It is in him that ethnicity, the ethnicity of God's people does not matter. God's kingdom is not spread through any one nation. Even America. I know for some of you it may be hard to believe. We are not God's chosen people as Americans. Okay? If it were... We should be scared and sad and frustrated with God because Korea, South Korea, South America, China, Africa, this is where Christianity is exploding and growing and flourishing. And in Europe and in America, it is shriveling up like a dead leaf on a tree. We are not the chosen people. Ethnicity does not matter in this new covenant era. God says now people from every tribe and nation and people and language, as those people can come and enjoy the righteousness of God. Just as all humanity has been corrupted by sin, so now all humanity can be acceptable by God without coming through Israel. In fact, it's not any kind of religious ceremony that brings people to God. It's not any kind of of culturally determined thing we must do to get us right with God. Paul says the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Today today we, we have all kinds of assumptions and preconceived ideas about what it takes to get us right with God. When we think about all these things that we have to do, all these religious things that, that we must accomplish, this, this, uh, whether we physically have one or whether it's mental or whether it's just in our hearts, this checklist of things we must, we must check off. I've given to the church, bought a cup of coffee for a homeless guy. I said some prayers. I read my Bible in a year. Whatever it is. For some, it may be huge. I've got to go and, and die on the mission field in order to be made right with God. Whatever it is, we, we have these, these structures in our minds, and God says, no, 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 no. It's not what you do. It's not what you do. It's what I've done for you. Therefore, the righteousness of God does not come to those like, like the Pharisee that we heard about who was standing there saying, look how great I am. It comes to those who realize they are nothing, and they simply can trust in God and his promises that by believing in Jesus Christ you will be saved that's what Paul wants us to understand we simply need to believe we trust God and his promises we believe he is our creator entrusting our very lives to him we believe he is our savior entrusting our souls to him but the question we have to ask is what confidence can we have what assurances are there that God will actually keep his promises God promises all who trust in Jesus will be saved. But how do we know he's going to keep that promise? 
How do we know that's a real promise? How do we know that, that that's even something that we should be banking our life on today? I mean, there's lots of people that say lots of good things about all kinds of different people and things and religions. What makes this different? Why can we trust Christ and his promise that salvation comes through Jesus? This is the third thing that we see, and that's this, the provision of God's righteousness in Christ. The provision of God's righteousness in Christ. How can we be confident that God will forgive sinners? That the unrighteous are able to know his righteousness? Paul says it's because of the amazing work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. All those who are sinful will be saved from God's just judgment on their sins are only saved, verse 24, by being justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There are three key words that stand on this passage that show us how God saves sinners, providing his own righteousness to them in Christ. So let's walk through this. First, Paul says sinners are justified. What does that mean? We talk about, I feel justified in my decision, right? Don't we use that kind of language? Well, what what does that mean? It means we feel right in making that decision, right? We feel like, yeah, it was a good decision to make, and I feel good about it. It was the right thing to do. When Paul uses it to speak of us being justified as a gift of God's grace, he is using it as a legal term to mean something similar. It means that we are declared righteous. It means the judge looks at us and says, you are not guilty. You are righteous in the eyes of the court. Therefore, if we are justified before God, it means God has given us a right legal standing before him. We are not guilty of the sins we have committed. But now, understand this. We we did commit the sin. We are guilty. We are sinful. And yet God says, you're not guilty. You're innocent. More than that, you are righteous. Thus, God's declaration of our righteousness, God justifying us again, does not come because we've done something. It's come to us, Paul says, as a gift of God's grace through Christ, which we receive by faith. Now, how can he do this, though? How can he forgive sinners who've actually sinned? More than that, how can he declare them righteous? Paul says this gift comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We've had the, the legal term justification. Now we move to the slave market with the term redemption. Again, even today, people talk about striving for redemption, don't they? And usually, what does that mean? It means I've done so many bad things in my life. If I could just do some good things now, I will have redemption. I will feel like that I'm okay, that my life balances out, uh, that, uh, that I can be acceptable by others. God says that our redemption comes through Jesus Christ. It is a, a slave who has, been, uh, who has been sold into that slavery. They are being redeemed out of it because someone has paid the cost of their redemption. They have bought that slave out of slavery that they might be free. And Paul says, Jesus Christ is the one who was offered as, uh, for the payment for our redemption. It is the giving of him by which we are freed from our enslavement and captivity to sin. Christ's death could serve as this means of redemption because, Paul says, he was put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, again, we we can get something of justification, we get something of redemption from modern English, but who in the world walks around saying propitiation? Okay, I don't know of anybody, all right? Um, I've certainly never said it to my kids before. So the question is, well, what does that mean? 
Well, it's interesting because, I don't know, uh, some of you may use the new internationally NIV version, and they're actually just about done updating that now. And there's uh, a, a blog that you can read, and it's back and forth between the people who were working on the translation team and other scholars about the decisions they've made. What they're actually hoping to do is get feedback and perhaps even be persuaded to change their mind in some places before they actually publish the, the, you know, the, the in-print edition of this new NIV. And one of the things that came up was this very... Um, this very issue of this word propitiation. The, the original NIV, uh, the one that you would have right now, says sacrifice of atonement. Okay, but what does that mean? What, what does sacrifice of atonement actually mean? It's really not that helpful, is it? Uh, it makes you go and look for some other, some other explanation of what that means. Well, what's interesting is that it's actually, if you have an NIV, the footnote actually has the best translation. You know what the footnote says? The footnote says an alternate reading might be this. God presented Christ as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away sin. Now, why did they use that? That's what propitiation means. If you're not going to use the word propitiation, then write something like that. For Christ to suffer as a propitiation means when he died on the cross, he absorbed, he satisfied, he fulfilled all of God's wrath against sinners. The, 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 the real and righteous and just wrath of God towards sin was satisfied. He's no longer angry at sin because of Christ's death on the cross. The judgment we deserve was taken away from us because it fell on Christ. And notice why this happened. Verse 26, God desired it. God sent Christ as the propitiation. Theologian John Stott says this, it would be hard to exaggerate the difference between the pagan and the Christian views of propitiation. In the pagan view, human beings try to placate their bad-tempered deities with their own paltry offerings. But according to Christian revelation, God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own son who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. Thus, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Isn't that amazing? I mean, if you, if you ever read, you know, kind of the ancient, uh, you know, Greek mythology, you know, you, you, you'll, you'll get a, a sense of what he's talking about here, but there's this distinction between the, the pagan idea of propitiation and the biblical or Christian idea. You know, there's, um, uh, you know, there's the story of, uh, I can't remember all the details now, but basically you have, uh, I think it might even be Helen of Troy or whatever, but anyway, this princess has been kidnapped and uh, she's been taken across uh, the, the, the sea and this great general Agamemnon, he's leading this fleet of warships to go and retrieve her, but the seas are nasty and violent and churning and they can't get, they can't make, they can't get through. So he sends word back to have his own daughter sacrificed to the gods of the water. And the god of the water says, okay, you can pass now. And they let him through. That's sick. You know what I'm saying? But more than that, it places the responsibility on us. That we have this fickle God and we've got to come up and do some dog and pony show or offer some great sacrifice to get them to not be fickle and actually love us and respond to us and do what we want. It means God can be manipulated by us. And the Bible says that's not how propitiation works with the one true and living God. We can't do anything to placate him because he's not fickle. He's not capricious. He is eternally good and righteous and just. Therefore, it is God himself who must offer himself in order to make us right with him. 
It is God sending forth Christ to satisfy His own righteous anger towards sin. That is the difference. And that is the basis upon which the promise goes out now. That all who simply turn to Christ in faith, turning away from their sins and trusting in Him, they will be saved. They will be seen as acceptable by God. Not because of what they have done, but because of what Christ has done for them. In Christ, the very righteousness of God is given to God's people. Our record of sin, the debt that we owe towards God is canceled through our redemption in Christ. But more than that, God's own righteousness, His perfection, His moral holiness is credited towards us in our justification in Christ. Therefore, in both ways, we have a double cure that allows us to stand faultless before God. That is the gospel, friends. That is the only way the Bible says you can be made right with God is because of what Christ has done, who both takes away our sins and the punishment that we deserve, but also gives us the righteousness that we must have in order to stand in his presence. Why did God use this means, though, to secure our salvation? This is the last thing that we see. We see this. The demonstration of God's righteousness through the cross. The demonstration of God's righteousness through the cross. If we rightly understand Christ's sacrifice, it is a glorious display of God's mercy and love, but it's more than that. Paul says it is also a vindication of God's righteousness. Paul tells us why salvation came to us the way that it did. He says in verse 25, all of this, all that he's been saying for the last four verses, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now what is Paul talking about? What does he mean? He means that the offering up of Christ as a propitiating sacrifice shows us the righteousness of God. Why? Because he says he passed over former sins. In other words, God allowed sins to be committed and did not bring judgment upon them. And Paul says that's a problem. That's a problem because God says he's holy and must judge sin. Now think about, again, the context in which Paul is writing. Jews and Gentiles coming together. What are the Jews immediately going to think of? All that blood. All that gore. All of those animals being offered day after day, year after year. What in the world was all that for? Well, here's the reality. It was for nothing unless unless Jesus came. Why? Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now think about that for a minute again. All of the Old Testament worship is based on sacrifices. It's all based on the blood of bulls and goats. And what does Hebrews say? It's worthless. Because that blood cannot take away sins. So you see about you see, so God, why did you have them do that? Why did you have them do that? For hundreds of years, you said, offer these sacrifices when you commit this sin. Offer this kind of sacrifice when you commit that sin. Offer this other kind of sacrifice for this kind of sin. Over and over and over again. Blood, blood, blood. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. And now we read, it's impossible for any of that to work. Not just in the New Covenant. Paul's not, Paul in Hebrews are not just say, well, now it's impossible. No, it, says it never would have worked. 
It can never bring about redemption. It can never bring about justification. Those things can never propitiate God's wrath. Do you sense the problem here? Paul says, you, you offer those sacrifices over and over again, but God, you know they're no good. Those didn't bring forgiveness for your people Israel. Instead, you basically just swiped those sins under a cosmic rug and said, ah, it's okay, don't worry about it. And you can't do that. You're good. You have to judge sin. Or else the whole thing is gone. You're not holy. You're not righteous. You're not just. And yet, you've said this is who you are. And Paul says, because now God has sent Christ, the one to whom all of those sacrifices were pointing forward to, the one to whom all those sacrifices are based on, that God shows himself as just. Because every single time the lamb was offered, every single time the bull was offered, even at Jesus' birth and his dedication, when the two doves were offered, God is saying, this is acceptable because my son is going to come and offer himself. This is acceptable because my son is going to come and offer himself. This is acceptable because my son is going to come and offer himself. If Jesus had not been offered, then then the whole thing blows up because God's not just. And he can't justify anybody. He can't forgive anybody. No, No payment for sin has been made. But because Jesus came as the perfect substitute, because he came as the one and only sacrifice that could fully satisfy God's just wrath against sin, then Paul says, God, yes, he is just. He is trustworthy. But more than that, he can actually justify sinners. He can actually offer forgiveness, real and lasting forgiveness to them. And his holiness is not compromised. His righteousness, in fact, is revealed to his people. His righteous character is made even more clear in the offering of Jesus Christ. In 1759, 59, a man named William Cooper was 28 years old and he had a total mental breakdown. He tried three different ways to commit suicide because he was convinced that he was to be condemned to hell and was beyond all hope. Four years later, in 1763, Cooper was committed to St. Albans Insane Asylum in England. And the providence of God, the doctor there was Dr. Nathaniel Cotton, a Christian who loved God and who loved the gospel. And Cotton also loved Cooper. And he held out hope to him over and over again, despite Cooper's insistence that there was no way God could ever forgive him, that he was beyond hope because of his sinfulness. Six months into his stay, Cooper was wandering through the garden and found a Bible. At that time, he did not know that Cotton had, in fact, left on that very bench, hoping Cooper would find it. Cooper Cooper began flipping through it and he came to John chapter 11, the story of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And he saw how Jesus interacted with sinners there, how he gave them back their deceased brother. And Cooper would later write, there was so much benevolence, mercy, goodness, and sympathy with miserable men in our Savior's conduct that he began to feel a ray of hope that perhaps even God might forgive him. But then he turned to our text, Romans chapter 3, verse 25. And here's what he says about that experience. He writes, immediately, I received the strength to believe it, and the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me. 
I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made. My pardon sealed in his blood and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and I received the gospel. In June 1765, Cooper left St. Albans and lived and ministered more than 35 years despite great battles with depression. And yet from his life came not only great encouragement to his fellow Christians, but even to us today in the hymns that he has written that we still sing. In one of them he writes this, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Cooper understood that because God offered Christ his own son, that no one could ever stand before God and say, I am too guilty to be saved. I am too sinful to be forgiven. There is no way God would have anything to do with me. No. Christ was the perfect offering for sinners. And he says rightly that that saving power in Christ will never be exhausted until every single person who would ever believe comes in through the sovereignty and the grace of God. So this morning, as you sit here, I first want to have you ask yourself, have you trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sins? Have you looked to this text? Have you looked to Christ, not only crucified, but risen, and said, there is one in whom I can put my faith and trust and find forgiveness? If not, then you must. Because there is no other way to find forgiveness from God. There is no other way to be saved from his wrath that will reveal against sin and sinners on the final day. But more than that, dear Christian, is it in light of this that you live your life? I am convinced that the reason why we do not love God as deeply as we should, the reason why we do not manifest joy in Him as we should, the reason why we do not serve Him as obediently as we should is because we have not stared long enough and hard enough and thought sincerely enough about the offering of Jesus Christ for us. For if we had, I think our lives, our lives would look much, much different. It is here that the very righteousness of God is seen. And that righteousness stands at the center of all that God said and did in the past and all that he will do in the future. And so let us come again and again and again, not just to Romans 3, but to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see our sins laid on him, his righteousness given to us, and the promise that when we trust him, God will save us on the final day. When we do that, then we will have all the reason to love, to serve, and obey our God and Savior. God, it's in the name of our Savior that we come to you in prayer now, asking that you would help us to more sweetly delight in the salvation you have given us in him. God, it is our fervent desire that we would not just know the facts, but that, God, we would love those facts, that we would love the gospel because it points us to Jesus Christ. And that, Father, he would be the great treasure of our lives. He would be the rock upon which we build everything. God, he would be the preserver in the midst of storms that we go through, God. 
Father, that in every way he would be our great refuge and shield. He would be the one in whom we place ultimate and final trust because he gave his life for us and lives forevermore, never to die again, as king above all kings and Lord above all lords. Father, make this sweet to our souls. We might live for you with joy and devotion. God, we ask all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.